to another episode of the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. Today we'll dive into the fifth teaching of the Nehemiah series, where we'll learn about the four essentials that Nehemiah requested of King Artaxerxes. Now no spoilers here, these same four essentials are also required to rebuilding our ruined lives, or our crumbled walls. Those that frequent this podcast know that part of our unique narrative is that of Pastor Harris's life. In this message, Dad reminds us of his own broken walls. Sadly for Dad, his walls began to crumble at the early age of four years old when he was abandoned along with his two sisters. Dad admits that his deep-seated fear of rejection from his biological parents and aspects around his adoption constantly weighed on him. He also had a constant fear of failure both consciously and subconsciously. Dad walks us through how he was successfully able to build up his protective walls. Now, not only that, how he was able to rebuild those walls using those crumbled stones of rejection and failure that lay all around him. So I ask you this, what are your crumbled stones, big or small, that lay all around you? Listen as Pastor Harris guides us through the essentials needed to rebuild our walls, just as Nehemiah gathered his essential resources to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Now, just as I did in an earlier Nehemiah episode, I had to divide this message that was originally an hour and a half into two parts. This episode will end after Dad introduces the last of the four requests Nehemiah asked of King Artaxerxes. From there, we'll spend the sixth installment of Nehemiah diving deeper into aspects that surround the fourth request and the revelations of new and fascinating types and shadows. With that, I give you episode five of the Nehemiah series titled The Four Essentials to Rebuilding Our Walls. Attaining the permission of Artaxerxes to travel to Jerusalem was only the first of several issues that had to be resolved before Nehemiah could leave Shushan. Two crucial considerations were raised by the emperor who asked Nehemiah, how long will your journey be and when will you return? Now, the first question, how long will the trip be? carried a far deeper implication than we might understand at first glance. You see, the emperor might have asked, what personnel and supplies will you need to make such a monumental journey? Now, that's the first question. The second question is this, how long do you plan to be gone? Now, this second question is very revealing to me. It reflects the deep personal regard that this emperor, this important man, Artaxerxes, felt for his cupbearer, Nehemiah. Now, as usual, Nehemiah was immediately ready with an answer to those two questions. Nehemiah's advanced preparation throughout this project demonstrates the magnitude of the gift of administration which he had been given by God. This man was a true administrator. You know, there are seven motivational gifts of the Holy Spirit, And all of us possess at least one of those gifts, and one of those gifts is prophecy, one is servanthood, one is exhortation, one is teaching, one is administration, one is giving, and one is empathy. Well, it's obvious to me that God had blessed Nehemiah with this awesome gift of administration and done so in profusion. Now, in the end, I can assure you of this, the presence of this spiritual gift, beloved, would prove to be the key to the successful completion of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it it was essential. It was crucial. Without this gift, it wouldn't have happened. Now, in response to the question of the length of the trip and its requirements, 
Nehemiah listed four absolute essentials that he would need to fully accomplish his mission. If it was going to be done, there's certain things he had to have. First, he would need adequate time. Second, he would need the proper authority, of course. Thirdly, he would need abundant resources. And fourthly, he would need capable personnel. All of those things would be essential to the rebuilding of God's city. Now, these same four essentials, my friends, time, authority, resources, and personnel, are also required to build our ruined lives. You see, if you're one of those Christian people whose walls of protection have been ruined, you need time, you need authority, you need resources, and you need personnel. And so what I want to do on this broadcast is to consider these essentials one at a time, and I want to consider them in some depth. First, if you're going to rebuild your life, there's a need for adequate time. It takes time. You see, a major requirement for any reconstruction project is adequate time for completion. Now, beloved, I can remember when our building, uh, when I was pastoring in Oklahoma City, our building was destroyed in the Murrah bombing. And when the builders began to build, I thought that they would never get through pouring the footings and building the stem walls. It just took forever. And every day I would go in and I would complain to, to the building manager, project manager, and say, what are you guys doing? How much time is this going to take? We, we've got to get after this. We're, this is important. And he would always say to me the same time, the same thing. Pastor, if you're going to build footings and if you're going to build a stem wall, that will support your building for years to come, it's going to take time. Now, beloved, that's true also of the rebuilding of our ruined lives. I mean, if you're one of those people whose lives is, is just in a, in a heap right now, I can tell you it's not going to change overnight. See, you can't rebuild your life in 24 hours. See, it's just like the trip to Jerusalem that Nehemiah was taking. He knew that trip, and he knew the rebuilding of the wall would not be completed in 24 hours, and neither can a devastated life. You see, in many cases, years of faulty mental programming. Now, that's the culprit. See, that's what destroys our lives Years of faulty mental programming, believing the wrong things, taking the wrong actions, must be erased and replaced with new input from the Word of God. You see, you have got to reprogram your mind. Now, Paul called this the renewing of the mind, and such reprogramming does not happen instantly, beloved. It does. You just doesn't say, I'm going to change, and it change. changes. Old habits must be broken. Deep inner hurts must be healed. Destructive attitudes have to be changed. And all of those alterations in behavior take time. So time is an essential element in this drama. Now, since time is so important, it was time that was on the emperor's mind when he asked Nehemiah, how long do you plan to stay in Jerusalem? And as I said, Nehemiah was prepared to answer. As the book of Nehemiah clearly says, Nehemiah set him a time. Now, beloved, the time frame 
Nehemiah recommended must have been enormously lengthy since Nehemiah would actually remain in Jerusalem for 12 long years. Did you realize that? Nehemiah was going to stay in Jerusalem for 12 years. Now, Nehemiah proposed such a period because he knew what I just said a moment ago, that reconstruction always takes time. And in this case, Jerusalem was so absolutely devastated, beloved, that it would require 12 years to accomplish everything that would need to be done. And as I said, the same is true of rebuilding our destroyed lives. The Holy Spirit is willing to set aside as much time as he deems necessary to restore us to wholeness. The Holy Spirit's not in a hurry. After all, he's timeless. Now, all the Holy Spirit requires from anyone who desires their lives to be rebuilt is a firm commitment to keep the door to his or her life opened long enough for the Holy Spirit to do his reconstructive work. Now, in Nehemiah's case, Hanani, a representative of all the people of Jerusalem, made this commitment in his initial meeting with Nehemiah. You see, Hanani promised that the city would be open to Nehemiah from the moment he arrived, and it would remain open to him for as long as it took to finish that rebuilding project, to rebuild the walls and the streets of the city. Now, everyone, including Nehemiah, realized that it would take a long time to complete such a massive venture. But time was only one of the requirements. Time is essential. It is necessary. But for the successful completion of this project, there would also have to be sufficient authority to successfully accomplish these goals. Now, adequate authority was as important as adequate time. Those two things go together, time and authority. Now, this word authority, by definition, actually means delegated power. Now, I want you to understand something. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. A cupbearer in Shushan, in the Persian Empire, had no personal power. See, it was a powerless position. The satraps of Samaria and Ammon, who governed Jerusalem at that time, actually possessed far more personal power than any simple courtesan like this man, Nehemiah. And since Nehemiah knew that these satraps would oppose his project, and he realized that he was powerless, he would require the backing of a person who possessed more power than the satraps, the rulers of Samaria and Ammon, before he could succeed. And that person of power would have to be willing to delegate some of that power to Nehemiah if the city was going to be rebuilt. Now, here's the key. Only one person in the Persian Empire had more power than the satraps. That someone, of course, was none other than King Artaxerxes himself. Now, without the delegated power of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah would have been rendered helpless. Not only that, he would have been useless in Jerusalem. He couldn't have accomplished anything. You see, without Artaxerxes' authority, the local magistrates would not have allowed Jerusalem to be restored. But with the power of Artaxerxes standing behind him, Nehemiah knew that he would take a giant step toward accomplishing his mission. 
So this is what he said to the emperor. This is what he said to Artaxerxes, and I quote, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me, for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me, not that they might, that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judea. End of quote. Now that's Nehemiah 2.7. With these imperial letters of commendation to substantiate his authority, Nehemiah could then act boldly, you see. He didn't have to go around and beg to get authority from this one and that one. He could act in the moment. Even the provincial border, border guards of the various satrapies would not be able to forbid him legal entry to their territories since he possessed letters of authority signed by the emperor of all Persia. And such letters as these were essential since this journey to faraway Judea would take Nehemiah across the borders of at least 10 Persian provinces, 10 satrapies. Now, my friends, you may not understand all of the terms I'm using, but let me just simply say this. These various satrapies, these provinces of Persia, were most interesting in their structure and their operation. I find them fascinating. You see, from its inse- the inception of the Persian Empire, the empire had been divided into 127 of these provinces, or satrapies, each of which was governed by a person having the title of satrap, S-A-T-R-A-P. Now, these satraps were appointed by the emperor himself, and they governed in the behalf of the emperor. These satraps were commissioned to protect the political interests of Artaxerxes and to collect the various imperial taxes. See, that's what the emperor cared about, that his political interests be preserved and that taxes be collected. Now, most of these satraps fiercely protected their own provincial borders. See, they didn't want a lot of people they didn't know and they were unsure of entering into their provinces. And so what they would do, whenever someone would leave one satrapy to enter another, the border guards would inspect the passports and travel documents of these people. Even, and then even after crossing all of these boundaries successfully, the next place a person entered, they had to jump through these hoops again. They had to do the same thing. And that was going to be true of Nehemiah as well. You see, But even if he was allowed access through each of these border crossings, his mission would still not be guaranteed. You see, just getting permission to cross borders, just getting permission to have free access across one satrapy into another would not guarantee his mission. He would face even greater opposition once he had arrived in Judea. He knew that. You see, all of those other issues were minor in comparison to what he was going to face once he arrived in the city of Jerusalem. See, Judea was the place where he would most need these letters of authority, since the governors of Judea would violently resist his mission. See, no one wants to have their power undermined, and Nehemiah understood that the satraps of that area, the area of Ammon and Samaria, We're going to resist him and resist him violently. Now, here's another thing you must understand. These satraps 
these governors, were not rubber stamps for the emperor. You must understand that. These satraps, especially those in the distant regions of the empire, places like Judea, exercised a great degree of independence in their decision-making. See, Shushan was far away, and communications were virtually non-existent. And this was especially true of Judea, which was so small that it didn't even have a governor of its own. It was governed by the satraps, as I said, of the larger surrounding provinces, especially the powerful province of Samaria to the north. Now, we can be sure that the very last things the governors of Samaria and Ammon wanted to see was the restoration of the former capital city of Judea to the status of a walled city. They didn't want that. They knew, they were more than aware, that their own power would be seriously diminished by such a project. And that is why those letters of authority from someone whose power was greater than the power of the satraps was so indispensable to Nehemiah. What I'm saying is this. Without proper authority, Nehemiah recognized that the rebuilding of Jerusalem would never be successfully completed. The letters were absolutely essential. Now, my friends, this need for credible authority has never changed. The people of God, for example, need adequate authority if we are to succeed in our lives. I mean, as I said, this is not only true in the physical realm, it's true in the spiritual realm. We need authority. In our struggles in life, we need the authority that only God can give. After all, the governors of this world, I'm talking here now about the principalities and powers of darkness, have always resisted the rebuilding of our lives with demonic urgency. These principalities and powers are Satan's satraps. They are the forces of darkness that will govern until this fallen creation is ended. And they will continue to reign on this earth until that day when Christ appears in power and glory and reclaims this world from Satan and from his governing minions. Meanwhile, We, the people of God, dwell in a world dominated by these wicked principalities and powers. But thank God, my friends, 2,000 years ago, the one great emperor of the universe commissioned his Holy Spirit to journey to this distant, faraway land of ours, to come down from the heavenly realm so that he could help rebuild the broken lives of God's people, restoring them to God's image. Now, as the Holy Spirit departed from his heavenly realm, the heavenly Father, the great emperor of the universe, bestowed upon the Holy Spirit all of the authority he would ever require to subdue the work of the evil one and his malignant governors. And the Holy Spirit has not kept all of this delegated power to himself. That is the good news. You see, the Holy Spirit has chosen to share his delegated power, his authority, with all of us who are willing to take it on. He distributes his authority to enable his church to assist him in his great reconstruction project 
Oh, listen, beloved. The Holy Spirit loves nothing more than distributing authority. He relishes it. He loves it when the people of God come and say, give me authority in this realm. You see, in this way, because of the Holy Spirit, we each become co-laborers with God in the rebuilding of our own lives and in the rebuilding of the lives of others around us. Now, my friends, our right to utilize God's authority has been documented in a great collection of authoritative imperial letters, letters we call the Holy Scripture or the written Word of God, the recorded Word of God. You see, these letters provide a record of all the rights and privileges that God has bestowed upon His church. These great letters describe all the assets and all the abilities that we have been given as his envoys on this earth. Now, one of these assets is the right, the God-given right, to use the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Oh, I can't think of a greater asset than that. This name, beloved, causes every foe to bow its knee before us. Now, the Holy Spirit not only delegates his authority to us, he also teaches us how to use it. And with that authority at our disposal, even the most broken among us can assist the Holy Spirit as he rebuilds our lives. So we, like Nehemiah, not only need adequate time for rebuilding, we also need the adequate authority structure if we are to succeed in our goals. Now, as I said, my whole point in this broadcast is this. The Holy Spirit provides us, those of us who have believed upon Christ, those of us who have been born a second time, He provides us with that authority. Now, alongside adequate time and proper authority, Nehemiah also needed access to certain building materials before he could initiate and then complete his mission. So listen to what he said to Emperor Artaxerxes, and I quote, Give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. End of quote. That's Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Now, here's what this says in heresies in my own King's English. It says to me that Nehemiah knew that he would need the strongest kind of wooden beams before he could possibly rebuild Jerusalem's walls and gates. Now, since if you've been to the Middle East, you know that there are very few heavily forested areas, and there's a real scarcity of wood in the region. And that's especially true of huge hardwood wooden beams that would be suitable for building city gates and wall supports. Now, all of the major cities of that time had several gate complexes with very large protective walls. So forests with large trees 
were considered to be a most valuable resource at that time. Now, this explains why most forested areas were usually the personal possession of a king or an emperor. The forest belonged to them. And since the king held the forest, since it was his to dispose of, if he desired to restrict the ability of a city to revolt, he would burn their gates and then forbid them access to his forests so that the gates could not be restored. And beloved, you, you've, you've got it. Without gates, a city was defenseless. Now, obviously, Nehemiah fully understood the necessity of having proper forestry permits. Without them, his mission would never succeed. And the only forested area in the neighborhood of Judea with trees large enough for city gates was the great cedar forests of modern Lebanon. And this forest must have been the one which was kept by a man whose name was Asaph. Now, now listen to this. Simply securing the wood was not Nehemiah's only concern, you see. The volume of wood required for a project as great as the rebuilding of the walls and gates of Jerusalem would be a difficult and costly thing because of transportation. How are you going to transport these enormous beams? The forests of Lebanon were at least 150 miles from Jerusalem, so the beams would have to be floated by sea to Joppa, then transported overland to the city of Jerusalem. So this adequate supply of wood was a definite problem that stood in the way of Nehemiah's rebuilding the city. But even though the wood was scarce, beloved, the other material required to build Jerusalem was more than abundant. See, wood was the only problem. The other material required was stone. And this project was going to require countless tons of stone. Now, most of the stones that would be needed were already present in the rubble along the line of the ruined wall. This mass of rubble, which had been produced by, you recall, by Nehemiah's assault, left tons and tons and tons of available stones everywhere along the former wall line. Now, some of these stones were whole, and some of those stones were shattered. Some had been quarried, and some were crude. Some were large, and some were tiny. But now, these various stones paint a picture of the spiritual and emotional condition of a large segment of the present-day church, and perhaps it's a picture of your own life. You see, the various personalities of those of us who comprise the church today are each totally unique, designed by God for special things. We've all been additionally, not only have we been shaped by God, but we have been shaped by the conscious and subconscious memories of our past experiences. The painful memories and experiences in our lives have created varying degrees of brokenness in our personalities. Some of us have been so battered by the experiences of our lives that our personalities have been reduced to little fragmented pieces. But a fortunate few of us have remained relatively whole. Yet taken together, we resemble Jerusalem's fallen walls. Fortunately, when God the Holy Spirit comes to us, you know what he does? 
He uses these very stones of our past experiences to rebuild us. He takes the broken pieces of our lives and he restacks them so that our personhood can be established. Oh, beloved, we can never be whole persons until the Holy Spirit arrives to assist us in the work of rebuilding. Now, understand this. This fact is crucial. In rebuilding our lives, the Holy Spirit will never leave little fragments of our personality lying around. You see, if that should happen, you know what would happen. Our enemy would grab those fragments and use them against us as weapons, just as he did when we were broken. After all, the pieces of our brokenness are multitude. All the hurts and pains that we experience as we travel through life leave little broken pieces of ourselves scattered everywhere. And each of these can become a missile in Satan's hand, which he will hurl back at us. Personally, I know about this brokenness firsthand. As you've heard me say on this broadcast again and again, when I was only four years of age, I was placed with the courts for adoption. At that time, one of the major walls of my life The wall of security, my friends, crumbled around me. Now, countless times over the years, I tried to rebuild that wall, but I could only get that wall so high, then my enemy would come and knock it down, and then he would use those very stones to hurl at me as accusations. Now, the enemy could always find two areas of weakness in any wall that I tried to erect. One weakness was the fear of rejection. Oh, that was a terrible thing. I feared rejection. And the other was the fear of failing. It was a terrible thing for me to anticipate failure. And both consciously and subconsciously, I would reason with myself in the following manner. I'd say to myself, what is wrong with me that even my own mother and my own father did not love me enough to keep me. Now, I knew that these two fears, the fear of rejection and the fear of failing, were weak, broken areas in my personal defenses. So periodically, I would rally, and I'd make an attempt to rebuild these fallen sections of my life. But just about the time I raised the wall to an adequate defensive posture, I'd experience rejection from a significant other, or I would prove to be less than perfect at something I attempted to do, and that wall would just crumble in ruins once again. You see, the problem I experienced with my own rebuilding effort was directly related to the lack of supporting timbers in my life, which would stabilize my walls. I lacked strong timbers, like a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I liked the strong timber of the experience of the personal presence of the Holy Spirit operating in and with me. Therefore, regardless of how sincerely I tried to rebuild my life, my walls would crumble over and over and over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times it happened. In time, I discovered that each succeeding collapse would create more and more rubble around me. I also discovered that my spiritual enemy 
would take these broken pieces of rubble and he would hurl them at me as he shrieked with vulgar glee. He would shout, listen, loser, you're not good enough to be loved and you will never succeed at anything you do. My shattered ego could only endure so much of this pounding so I would finally surrender to my spiritual enemy and cease trying to rebuild my broken walls for a while. However, such concessions as these never resolved anything, beloved. And with each passing day, my psyche became more and more and more bruised. I felt that I was helpless. Not only that, I felt that I was hopeless. And then finally, one day in desperation, I confessed my brokenness to God, and he answered my pleas by sending his Holy Spirit to assist me in my stalled rebuilding efforts. Now the Holy Spirit, like Nehemiah of old, needed only two elements to help me rebuild my life. He needed new beams, and he needed old stones. You see, the Holy Spirit himself provided the new timbers. Now, he took that upon himself to get these new beams for my life. Now, one of these timbers, beloved, was grace. Another was forgiveness. And yet another was divine acceptance. And on and on and on the list goes of the new beams that the Holy Spirit brought into my life. And these new timbers became the support beams for my existence. Now, the second building resource that the Holy Spirit required was already present within me, you see. It consisted of all those fallen stones that were surrounding my life. These stones would provide the protective structure for my life once the beams were in place. And even though many of these stones were crushed or broken by events in my past, the Holy Spirit took my personality traits, those various gifts he had bestowed upon me, my experience in life. I'm talking about all the old stones and then the Holy Spirit put them to use in rebuilding my life. You see, that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has the supernatural ability to take whatever stones he finds in anyone's life and use them to make something beautiful out of them. You might say, The Holy Spirit is the master mason. As the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 13 declares, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his own good pleasure. Now, often we discover that some of the most broken parts of us, some of the most devastated areas of our lives can actually, at a later time, become our greatest assets. Even the very smallest broken pieces can be used as shims, and a wall will never stand if it has no shims. Thus, the clutter that often causes us to fall when we are in a carnal state, can become a source of strength to us when we are rebuilt under the direction of God's Holy Spirit. I thank God daily that this, trans, this transition has been made in my life. 
You see, the Holy Spirit used those timbers of grace and divine acceptance to support the weakened areas caused by my inner fears. And now I stand complete and whole in him. That rubble around me is now a part of my wall. My past areas of vulnerability have now become some of my areas of greatest strength. And beloved, the same can be true of you as well. Don't stand around in the rubble. Dispatch the Holy Spirit to get those timbers that will help you rebuild yourself. Allow him to take those old stones, even the broken pieces, and put you together again. Now, I can assure you that Jerusalem would have this experience in the physical realm, not in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm. One day, this builder, Nehemiah, would come with letters of authority and with all the material required to rebuild the devastated city. And then, once he arrived on the scene, this type and shadow of the Holy Spirit, the rehabilitation of Jerusalem would begin. The builder only needed one other resource, the right accompanying personnel. You see, once the emperor had granted to Nehemiah the time and authority that he would require to complete his mission. And once the emperor had provided Nehemiah with access to the raw materials he would need to raise Jerusalem's walls and gates, Nehemiah felt that he was ready to embark for Jerusalem. But fortunately for Nehemiah, he served a very wise emperor. Artaxerxes, now, not Nehemiah, but Artaxerxes, had foreseen one additional requirement that Nehemiah appears to have overlooked. The king knew that if his cupbearer was to succeed, he would also require a select group of men to accompany him. Now, these men would not only assist Nehemiah with his building project, but they would be available to attend to Nehemiah's personal safety as well, and that was important. You see, Artaxerxes, who is a type and shadow of God, knew that Nehemiah would need personal protection. Now, Artaxerxes selected these assistants personally from a group of men that were totally loyal to himself. They were actually captains from Artaxerxes' imperial army and from his cavalry troops. Now, Artaxerxes was fully aware of the dynamics of political intrigue. He knew that opposition would appear just as soon as Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. He realized that in a province as distant from Shushan as Judea, even his royal letters of authority would not deter the antagonism that Nehemiah would engender. After all, to accomplish his purpose, Nehemiah would be required to usurp authority that had been exercised by local officials for many, many years. And the emperor knew all too well that these leaders would not surrender this new authority without a fight. He understood that a power struggle was inevitable and therefore seasoned military assistance would be required if Nehemiah's mission was to be completed. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. 
If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future. 